Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we discuss the gameplay and art of Final Fantasy VII. And we're just going to jump right into it. We've spent so much time on the plot and characters and themes and all of this stuff. You could have forgotten over the last 15 episodes or so that this is a video game that you play. And so, yeah, let's dive into some of the things. And we really do have to begin with the Materia system, right? It is the skeleton of, the backbone of the game that you are playing most of the time throughout Final Fantasy VII. And it's a really interesting one in a lot of ways because I think the thing that makes it stand in starkest contrast to the first six games, and I believe this is pretty universally agreed upon, is that the characters in battle are now no longer unique. Which is to say that the materia that any particular person is wielding determines what they can or cannot do. And the power, rather than being learned by our heroes, as it had been in Six, when Magicite would teach them, or in previous games, usually when the Crystals would teach you a new set of skills or jobs or whatever it may be, that would then the characters would just know how to do. In this game, the power goes with the magical crystalline device itself. And that did two major things. Allow for extraordinary customization. And we'll talk a little bit about that in more detail in just a second. But I think for those of us that were Final Fantasy fans before 7, this took some getting used to the fact that in battle, other than their limit breaks, another thing we'll talk about, the characters really don't matter. <laughs> yeah, as far as gameplay, it's I do recall that they have different sets of stats, right? Like so with yes. white magic abilities, Aerith is still the best. But you're right, right, the the level of curing healing abilities follows that particular materia. Uh, I do think we run into this a little bit in 6 also, even though the, the individual abilities do set them apart. When everybody's got every spell as as gameplay tokens, as, as gameplay pieces, they do become kind of samey-same. It doesn't bother me much, but I do understand why it might bother others. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to offer these two things at the same time, right? Customization and also uniqueness. And six, like you talked about, I think one of the things that was interesting about that is only one character at a time could learn off of one piece of magicite at the time. So you're right, by the end of the game, most of the characters were samey-same. But when you first get the magicite, it takes, you kind of have to specialize and decide, okay, you're going to learn all the cure spells first because you are more naturally inclined to all that stuff. And later on, I'll have you learn the other things, right? Where this is just, well, if, if you have this rock, you can do all that stuff. Maybe not quite as well as someone who's more naturally inclined, but you can do all the stuff. And, and you don't have to learn it. It's automatic and it's right away. But the flip side is that what this essentially did was allow you to create your own unique builds, where in the past, you know, you'd kind of be limited to whatever the developers had decided the archetypes were. And with the command, magic, and summon materia allowing you to do things, because the way it works is, right, you put the materia on either your weapon or your accessory, and a lot of the, the genius of the system is allowing you to combine the things so that you can put the fire materia on your weapon, which now you're going to deal extra damage to anything that's weak against fire every time you attack. Or you can counter not by swinging your sword back, but by casting cure or a piece of magic or whatever it may be. And that allows you to do all kinds of creative and interesting things. Yeah, there's a pretty cool combo uh, where Tifa's got some weapon that if she's about to die, her, her stats go way up. So if you give her the, if you, if you do the one that gives her the, the status of death, then suddenly she's this powerhouse. It doesn't matter that she's going to die in 60 seconds because the battle's over in 10, 
right? <laughs> right. There's there's some really fun customizations that, like when you die, you get to do one last thing, and if it's Phoenix, well then, yeah, great. You know, th- there's some some fun stuff that makes you feel pretty smart when you figure it out. Yeah, and that's the other thing, right? That feeling of satisfaction. I've seen some phenomenal videos of streamers you know, winning the final battle or maybe a big battle against one of the weapons on that exact thing. Like you said, countering with Phoenix and your entire party is wiped out. But the Phoenix summon brings back anyone from the KO status and your whole party is revived and you get that one last. And it's just an amazing thing to when you realize you can do that stuff or the all materia, you know, all the different things you can. And it's just, it, it really is amazing how many different customized builds you can come up with and in a lot of ways that makes it like a a prototype for systems that we would see later you know final fantasy 12 with the gambit system uh, you know it, it's not quite getting to if then statements which are really really cool when you get to that game but you can see it's the beginning of that kind of logic here in final fantasy 7 when you can counter with phoenix you're you're sort of doing that you're creating your own if then system Right. And then even to go on in in the MMOs and all of the customization, right? That's so much of the idea is being able to build, make your own builds of characters and combine all different kinds of things. And, you know, this was before uh, those really existed, certainly well before they were popularized. And so it's pretty cool to see the inner workings of these classic RPG ideas that on the surface, this gameplay system isn't that much different than the six that preceded it. It's the start of some huge jumps toward things that would exist in other games. And then of course there's, you know, the gameplay materia, command magic and summon stuff like that. But there's also the storyline materia that does one thing, right? White Materia summons Holy. Black Materia summons Meteor. Huge Materia has weird undefined properties. Uh, the Keystone Materia allows you into the Temple of the Ancients. And each one of the you know, regular Materia has a master version of itself. And uh, it's really interesting. We talked during some of the story about you know, the superpowers of the planet, the lifeblood of magic, and uh, it's very similar to Magicite in that way, but also its own version. I think a really cool like, in-story reason for why magic works the way that it does. Yeah, I, I think that's a... I, I like that it parallels some of what we've talked about with some of the other games, that the, the powers of our heroes typically come from the planet or the, the balance of the elements, right? So in Final Fantasies three and five you get your various uh, Final Fantasy jobs from the crystals or from the shattering of the crystals, right? And then in six, you, you get your powers from the espers, uh, the, their crystalline, crystallized remains. Uh, and they are, you know, espers are the result of three gods, the warring triad, who are embodiments of the planet. So I, I like that that particular device, literary device trope, whichever it is, continues on in this way. I think that's really cool. I do also want to say, because I meant to mention it in the story episode about it, but the four huge materia really do seem to parallel the four crystals uh, that the warriors of light from Final Fantasy I have when they show up, show up to Corneria, right? Yeah. So, the, again, finding new ways to do the things they've already done. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that takes us right into the other big, obvious gameplay elements that I mentioned earlier. The innovation of Final Fantasy VII, known as Limit Breaks, would become very popular in the series, and for good reason. It's a whole lot of fun that, in addition to doing all of the things you can do from fight to fight, using your weapons or your magic or your items to strategically get your way through battles that you also build toward this other goal of the super attack. Once you've built the bar up enough, you've taken enough damage, or by the end you can customize it so that it builds up when you do damage, or any number of different, again, back to the sort of prototype for the gambits in Final Fantasy XII, but having each character have their own set of super attacks that can be unlocked 
after a certain set of conditions are met, is just an obviously good idea. <laughs> yeah, I I like it a lot, and I like how it will be uh, tweaked going forward, right? I, I like that it's going to be slightly different in 8 and 9 and 10 and so on. But yeah, it's just a cool concept. There was a sort of version of it in Final Fantasy VI. You, they were toying with the idea, again, with the desperation attacks, which is a bit more random, but if you were very low on health and had one of your characters do an attack, there was a chance that they might do something special. But a lot of people have played that game and never know about those because they're pretty rare. And yeah. you have to kind of be trying to make it happen. Yeah, the only reason I've seen them all is because of YouTube. Right. I've seen a few here and there in the wild, as it were, naturally. Right. Uh, but it's pretty rare. Whereas the limit breaks, not only, again, are they these awesome displays of the graphical power of the PlayStation 1. We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> and, and these things that do set the characters apart a little bit, which is nice. You know, Vincent turns into the universal monsters, as we've talked about. And Tifa does all kinds of cool ninja shit. And, you know, Sid can do some jumpy dragoony type of stuff. And Cloud's got all kinds of amazing sword techs and... You know, so that stuff is really cool, but there also is storyline relevance as well. We talked about how, you know, a lot of them, there's a special story element you have to go and do to get their final limit break, like Nibelheim, Tifa, the note from Zangen. But there's also, like, the game ends on the ultimate limit break. Like, it's a... (laughs) The Omnislash is, like, an important storyline thing. And I I think that's pretty cool, too. I also like that it's a thing that you, because it's a thing that you build up to, you don't have access to it all the time. So do I use it in this fight? You know, I just got my limit break. Do I use it now or do I wait for the boss? Or if the boss is up ahead, do I stop and go around and get my limit breaks built up before I go into the fight? Yep. Yep. Ready to unleash on those things right away, buddy. So it really is a great system, and I I love it quite a bit. And as much as I agree with you about the tweaks in 8 and 9 being really interesting, I do think 7 and 10 are the best versions of the system. From that set of games, anyway. All right, one other thing on just sort of the mechanics of the setup of playing Final Fantasy VII that was different from the games before, only three people... In the party. Boo! <laughs> there we go. We're going to criticize this game, damn it. Yeah. Let I, anybody who ever says we think this game is perfect or never get right to this part. Right, yeah. I, I just, I want to use all my characters. I'm the guy who's going to delay going to the final dungeon because I want all my characters to be at about the same level. So I want to build them all up. I want to get everybody's thing. I want them all to be important. I want them all to have a role in the adventure. I don't want to leave anybody behind. Uh, one of my favorite things about six, right, was being able to do three parties, three right. parties of four, which is great. But then you get two extra characters, so you don't have 12, you have 14, so you still have to leave two behind. Yeah. Uh, I want to use them all. Yeah. We're going to r- run into this with tactics also. You know, I right. want to use the whole the whole crew. And that will be forever my frustration with Final Fantasy. Ten handles it well, I think. Yeah, 10's perfect. 10, like, finally solved the problem, right? But, but then they don't do it again. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get into all of that. But, yeah, as far as... It, this was frustrating, and it's funny because I think, you know, as is well known, a lot of people started with Final Fantasy VII, and so they hadn't known any other system. And so, you know, three in battle at a time may have just seemed like, oh, okay, that's how these games work or whatever. But it is interesting that... This is the one way, if you want to say they, they took a step back. And I, w- I would even argue if three in a party is just what they had to do and, and it's, you know, there's even maybe some benefits to that. Like you were talking about, more of those dungeons where you can use your entire party. And we'll talk about this more in the final wrap-up when we get to flaws and things. I think it really gets to the heart of some of the issues with the party members who aren't as central to the story. There are literally two who are optional and one that doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, I, I think that it all kind of goes together. But there is that element, I agree, where, like, I'd like to be able to feel like we're using the entire team and not just 
three at a time. And, and especially because there really is no storyline, real world reason why, you know, you have to use the cell phone. That's another thing right. that, <laughs> right, a, game, a little gameplay element. You have to call them up on the phone to change party members, but like, it's on, like they're coming from Hammer Space. It's like not I guess, clear. Yeah. yeah. So again, and it looks to me, I think in the remake, you know, especially after having played Intermission, they're going to basically make it so that you can rock around with the whole squad because yeah. why would you not want to do that? <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to it. I like the way it was done in 15 too because there's just the four guys. Sure. And sometimes there's an extra, you know, sometimes people leave, right? And sometimes you've got Iris and sometimes Guest, you've got Aranea. Yeah. And, yeah. and I like that. So that's just how I want it done going forward. Or do Final Fantasy VI, give me 12 characters, three teams of four, or we could go four teams of four, right? Give me 16. Right. I'm all for it. I just want to use the whole crew. 100%. All right. Something we've talked about before, and in our Chrono Trigger episodes, we gave a ton of credit to Chrono Trigger for getting to this space first. But we cannot deny that despite the fact that a lot of these really aren't that great. Right. <laughs> Final Fantasy VII really did popularize the idea of the mini game, and so Ira. Yeah. What exactly? <laughs> but before I hit the what? list, I just yeah. want to point out that Final Fantasy One did have a mini game. It was just yeah. hidden. You had to do. I yeah. can't even remember what it is, and it's one of those sliding number puzzles. Yeah. Well, you're out on the ocean, and you yeah, sliding number. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna run through these real quick, and then we'll go back and talk about the ones we feel like. Are worth talking about. <laughs> There's Aerith throwing barrels. There's <laughs> opening the door in unison in Reactor 5. There's doing the squats in Wall Market. Sneaking into Shinra Tower. There's sort of a, a stealth element. There's the uh, motorbike down the highway minigame. There's the Fort Condor minigame. There's the CPR to save the little girl under Junin minigame. There's the parade. There's Chocobo racing and Chocobo breeding. There's the Wonder Square in the Golden Saucer, which has arm wrestling, basketball, uh, the little catcher thing, the motorcycle game again, fortune-telling, Mog House, 3D Battlers, the snowboarding game, and the submarine game. So those are all sort of games in the context of games. In the Speed Square, there's the roller coaster slash shooting game. There's the Bone Village, where you excavate items. There's snowboarding when it happens in the story. There's putting the flags in the snow. There's the Gaia's Cliffs, where your body temperature drops and you got to warm yourself up. There's the Whirlwind Maze, where you got to pass through when the wind is down. And I may have missed a few here and there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a great list, even if it's not complete. A lot of stuff in there, right? Whereas, again, the previous six games would have little things here and there that would break up the basically you know pattern of story battle story battle maybe shopping <laughs> you know is the other thing that you do in these games so this is a whole ton of them and it is funny that in hindsight none of them are that especially compelling i think the ones that stick out the motorcycle chase was really fun at the time in hindsight <laughs> it, I it's think pretty it's... Yeah. I feel like it's a step above the jet bike race in Chrono Trigger. Yes. But okay, yeah. We we yeah. did both of those mini games over and over again, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't I don't want to downplay all of them. Right. It's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I I do like that some of them after you, you do them in the course of the narrative, but then they show up again in Wonder Square at uh, at Gold Saucer, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like that element. I remember really enjoying the entire concept and running around in the Wonder Square a lot and doing all of those things and trying to master them. But part of the problem was a lot of them, there, there was an element of randomness to things like sure. the battler and, and whatnot. And to the point that if you got to a certain level, it really did just become a guessing game. And... But they were fun and interactive and almost more, again, for the wow factor of, I can't believe this game is letting me play it in a completely different way. And right. th that you're in the, the elements of the world. And one of the things that we, you know, I've heard people say about this game over and over again, and I hear streamers say all the time, is the whole thing feels like this just enormous journey, right? That's the word that's almost always used. And even if these games individually doing the cpr 
We talked before about how original Fort Condor just didn't really move either of us. Yeah. You haven't played Intermission yet. New Fort Condor is dope. And if they're going to update each one of these concepts, and we've talked before about how that's the whole, that's the great thing about a remake or, or reimagining a, a great idea is that a lot of these things were good ideas that they couldn't fully execute well. Sure. But, you know, like the way they did the opening the door in unison, they kept stuff like that. Or the squats in Wall Market are now a huge yeah. fun thing for people to do in that game. Yeah, squats and pull-ups in Final Fantasy VII Remake, excellent. Honeybee yeah. Inn, excellent. Right, yes. But, for, yeah, Fort Condor in the original sucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, I do want to call out that I, you know, I, I really like snowboarding. I liked chocobo racing and, to a degree, chocobo breeding. Yeah. The Mog House uh, the, is cute. The Mog House is super cute. The Mog House is adorable. and uh, Not especially fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. But super adorable. And I, I really like that. Like you said, it sort of breaks up the expectation. This little girl is going to die unless we give her CPR. So do we just want a cutscene or do we want to get involved? And I think even though some of these are more missed than hit, I like that they took the choice, that they, that they they made the choice to get us involved, right? It, it was a big swing, uh, and I'm glad they were bold about it. Yeah. And you mentioned the chocobo racing and breeding, and I think, again, that's planting the seeds for some ideas about MMOs. We talked, I don't know, how many episodes ago about how just remarkably satisfying it was to run around in Final Fantasy fourteen and just collect stone from the mountains and then take it back into town and become a metal worker and then actually craft armor that you could go out and wear in battle. And while we weren't anywhere close to that level of customization and intricate world building, the idea that you could go out into the world, get into a battle with the Chocobo, feed it the right kind of thing, bring it to your side, take it to a barn, go get another one, breed those two, get a different kind that could take you to different places or maybe help you win races that help you win money and unique items like that was mind-blowing in 1997. Uh, even if after a while some of the breeding did get a bit monotonous and you just started screaming, why can't I get a gold chocobo? <laughs> <laughs> I just want Knights of the Round and I can't I get there without a gold chocobo. One thing. Um, but I agree. I enjoyed the racing quite a bit. And um, I enjoyed the snowboarding back in the day as well. I can't stand it now. Uh, I can't wait to see what they they do with that. Same thing with the submarine one. I remember liking the submarine game back in the day, and I tried to play it a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, no, this sucks. (laughs) But I'm excited for each one of these in the remake, every single one of them. Even even, uh, CPR? 3D Battler? 3D Battler was just like guessing rock, paper, scissors, right? Right. So I'm wondering if, yeah, they'll make a, an actual little fighting game and put it in there with, like, other characters. And stuff. Like, how amazing would that be? Especially if they were the characters, like, from this, for the you know random. What, you know what they should yeah. be? It should be uh, Urgaz or whatever that fighting game was. Yeah. That had yeah. Final Fantasy VII characters in it. Or The exactly. Bouncer. Or <laughs> <laughs> pull from some of those other Squeenix games of the time. That'd be amazing. Like, they can do so much with the gold saucer. They could literally make just an entire game out of the gold saucer. They did it in Final Fantasy XIV. That's basically, you can just do that or just play Triple Triad or whatever. Right, right. It is, yeah. It's amazing. And so, yeah, Final Fantasy VII, while it didn't completely change the formula from, you know, Final Fantasy VI, even things like. There was a Colosseum in Final Fantasy VI, but we talked about how it was bleh. But there's this much better version of it in the Gold Saucer in Final Fantasy VII. And so, yeah, they just learned so much between those two games and implemented so many of the ideas that they weren't quite able to perfectly execute in VI. Desperation attacks, a Colosseum, the idea of minigames kind of in general in both six and chrono trigger where it was like okay cool but you've got to make this a a real integral thing to what you're doing and in seven they did and then the materia system it's was one of the most really in 1997 
Well, you you can look and say, hey, at its core, it's still a Final Fantasy game where you stand there and you wait to attack and they attack you and you fire magic on ice creatures and it's it's a Final Fantasy game. You know, ultimately, 7 was the most interactive video game ever in 1997. And that's pretty amazing. We got to talk about optional bosses. We got Ruby Weapon and Emerald Weapon, who are enormously difficult to fight and basically can only be beaten with like two or three uh, tactics, right? You got to you gotta know how right. to do it or it's not really possible. We, we talked about War Mech slash Death War Machine yeah. from Final Fantasy 1. In Final Fantasy 6, we talked about, what was it, Doomgaze and Pumbaa. Right. I don't know that there are a whole lot of other optional bosses before we get to here now, and then they become almost standard, like we talked about with Limit Breaks and, and some of these mini-games. So yeah, I, I, I like the concept of the optional boss, just because it gives you, once you've defeated the game or you've played the game enough, it gives you another thing to still do, to go ahead and power up your characters all the way, so that you know a person like me who wants to play the game to, to see the story doesn't have to get to level 200 and get all the stuff and right. know all the intricacies of of the materia system in order to win and see Sephiroth defeated. But for those who want to do that, here are some more challenges, and I, I really like that. And I like how in Dawn of Souls that became, you know, there, there became some optional dungeons. I, I think that's a, a neat post-game thing to do. Yeah. Okay, let's move over into talking about the art and setting, generally speaking, the visuals of Final Fantasy VII. And Ira, I want to talk about the world and the backgrounds and all of that stuff, but I feel like we've got to begin with a name. Tetsuya Nomura. Yeah, uh, not definitely not Yoshitaka Amana. No, he's not. No, and different. I think that's main good. Main character and fine. designer. Yeah. yeah, I, I love Amano's work, and I think it's amazing. And I wonder sometimes how he got to be so well known for being a video game character designer, when his designs do not translate well at all to pixels. Right. Or, or at least to the the hero pixels. Right. For the monster designs, they got to be bigger and more intricate. But even then, especially early days, like we've got this really cool ethereal artwork that's highly expressive, and it just does not translate that well. And the people who translated it did their damnedest, and, and good for them. I do wonder what it might have been like to see Final Fantasy VII character designs by Yoshitaka Amano. I know he did some of Cloud and Red and some of them later. Right. But, you know, some of his, with all the flowing scarves and the dangly yeah. jewelry and like the little extra monsters here and there, I mean, what would that have, what would that have been like? I don't know that it would necessarily been better, but it would have been interesting to know. Now that said, I really like the character design of Final Fantasy VII. We're, we're getting a little grungier. I'm not sure Yoshitaka Amano does grungy very well. Even his steampunk world was very pretty. Right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so I like the result, but I don't necessarily like it better than. Does that make sense? Sure. And, you know, I think that's one of those things that, you know, while I've pushed you at times to name favorites or participate in lists or whatever else, I 100% agree. It's They're just so different from each other. There's no reason to pick a favorite or not. I understand people that get frustrated that Tetsuya Nomura characters kind of take over from here on out. And if they liked the old style more, if they if they happen to like it more and not equal like we kind of do, then yeah, I get it. That said, I do not think you can 
separate the popularity of the characters, the main cast of Final Fantasy VII, from their designs and from the success of the game. Ultimately, I mean, look at all these years later, when people talk about this game, they talk about the characters and who they love and, and who they hate and, and what everyone's motivations were. And yeah, a lot of that's in the writing. A lot of that's in, you know, the work done by the, the writers of the story. Absolutely. But this might be, be, I don't even know about what I'm saying might be for this, the most recognizable cast of characters in the history of role-playing games. Right, and I think one of the reasons for that is Nomura's character design is much more anime-like. Yes. And it's built upon these silhouettes, right? If you show me a silhouette of Terra versus a silhouette of Rydia, I might not be able to tell them apart. But you show sure. me a, a silhouette of Cloud versus a silhouette of Vincent, Absolutely. Like, right. you know, it's a no-brainer. I think it goes a long way to what you were talking about, right? It, it, it helps to define the characters as what they are. And, and it's, the results speak for themselves, like you're saying. Yeah, to your silhouette point, whether you're looking, like, anyone who's seen it can just close their eyes and see the entire cast standing right there. And you could just do it in, in silhouettes and... Catch she for all the things he isn't and for all the plot points that don't make sense. Unforgettable character design. <laughs> don't forget the look of that character. Red 13, unique, unforgettable. The tail on fire, the tattoos, the, the tribal elements of it, the mix between a lion, a, a dog. It's just all these... Uh, what is it? I don't know. It's an interesting design. Cloud and the spiky hair and the huge sword, Sephiroth and the long silver hair and the ridiculous anime sword. But all of those things are integral to the feel and the uniqueness of Final Fantasy VII. Like you said, you don't mistake these characters. We've talked about the Turks. You don't mistake them for anybody else. And... For whatever you can say about, and I'll get into defending belts and stuff when we do Kingdom Hearts and sure. and all of that stuff. But like you said, these are gritty, believable, realistic characters that are also over-the-top, fantastical, unrealistic characters. And that's an amazing middle ground for him to have found here. And so you've you've got to tip your cap. And he's obviously gone on to an extraordinary career after this. But what a breakthrough first big thing. You know, he'd been working on the games before a little bit here and there. He had designed a couple of characters for Six and written some of their stories. But to take over the full cast and have it be still to this day as popular as they are. Whew. And one other thing that I wanted to say to your point about uh, the anime thing is I do also feel like this design and these visuals fully complete what I've always felt like is the Final Fantasy elevator pitch, which is, you know, it's Lord of the Rings meets Star Wars meets anime, whatever, you know, I usually like to like Akira or Ghost in the Shell. It's usually got that, you know, and there are moments in the first six games, as we've talked about and highlighted throughout, but seven really does bring us right to that middle point of those primary influences which I think is just an exquisite and kind of undeniable mixture of things for certainly nerds like us, where you've got equal parts, you know, Blade Runner and Lord of the Rings and this over-the-top anime style that really sets it apart. So, speaking of translating character designs into video game models, sure. uh, <laughs> while I do think yeah. that it was easier to translate Nomura's designs into these polygon character models, they're still, they look like Legos, <laughs> cheap Legos yeah. even. Yeah. When they're doing the full motion videos, they look pretty good, even yeah. by today's standards. Uh, a little stiff maybe, but man, those on-screen polygons 
Again, it's a representation of a thing. We get that. It's a video game. The graphics were amazing for the time, but it's been 20 years. And I, uh, yeah. 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 You know, I've, I've heard some interesting defenses of the Polygon characters, even after all these years. I think it was Super Eyepatch Wolf or something like that on YouTube, who talked about the way it creates this sort of toy box feel where the characters feel very small and kind of in this giant world and like they're almost little toys that have been placed into the I was like that's kind of an, an interesting way to think about it and sort of justify their simplistic designs and they still have a lot of those sort of Final Fantasy 6 style emotes well they're where they'll like turn and look at the camera and shrug and stuff sure you know they were they were in an in between spot. I agree with you that they just don't age well. I think that's one of the main reasons why the game is being remade. We just talked about how beloved the characters are, and we could see in the FMVs like you talked about, or sketches if you got, you know, strategy guides or you just looked at you know official stuff or whatever. You could see what the characters should look like ideally, and they just these weird blocky hand square figurines. Uh, in the old game and so it's hard to you know it hasn't aged even as well as I would say pixels I think the pixel art of the Super Nintendo era is less harsh on the eye than these particular polygons and and it's interesting to look at the what I think are the amazing pixel art of Super Nintendo especially 6 and then the blocky polygons of 7 and then what they would go on to do with 8 which aren't perfect but are far better yeah. Right, and and that's, I mean, it, it it's such it it's in such a weird, awkward position. Yeah, yeah, definitely in its teenage years, which is is good for Final Fantasy VII. It's got that angst. It's like sure. <laughs> it reflects a kind of teenage angst, maybe. But it's also weird and interesting to look at those kind of blocky, again, are you like ugly sort of character models? In front of these yeah. still gorgeous to this day, yes. even though they're a little bit blurry, you know, they're still 1997 PlayStation, but the backgrounds are just, some of them are breathtaking now. Absolutely. And they do such a phenomenal job of helping to set the tone of this game. When you're in Midgar, it's this dystopian capitalistic nightmare. But then you get out of Midgar and there's this deliberate juxtaposition like we talked about between Midgar and Calm, right? Calm is still sort of in the influence of Midgar because the whole world is, but it's also within world map walking distance. Uh, You know, Midgar looms in the distance, but it's definitely different. It's a small, poor town and it's nothing like the, the steel pizza of Midgar. And then you get even further away and and you get to see that there's this whole bigger world. And and so I like how it draws those deliberate juxtapositions between late stage capitalism nightmare and potentially idyllic, but still under that shadow. Yeah. And drawing that just remarkable, you know, and I've I think I've inaccurately a couple of times maybe even referred to Final Fantasy Seven on this podcast as cyberpunk. Uh, we I, we have since I think we're corrected that to say it's more diesel punk it's not really about the internet while computers and presumably some version actually when you play crisis core there's like emails and all that stuff so you, you they do have the internet the story just isn't really about those themes it is like you said more concerned with the kind of what the energy output is doing to the environment and and all of those kinds of things obviously but that the visuals of the world create this unique thing we talked about how in six you know you don't see a ton of steampunk in fantasy storytelling and so it it sets it apart a little bit though check out the nevers on hbo (laughs) feels very final fantasy 60 to me for that reason Uh, and i would say the same thing about seven but even more so that again when we try to compare it to other worlds right how does it feel there's a little bit of blade runner but there is a little bit of the traditional fantasy setting of, of a more Tolkien-like experience once you get out into some of the wilderness or into the magic-y areas. You, know, you could confuse the Temple of the Ancients for some of the elven architecture, maybe. Not in the same way, but that it's magical and otherworldly and 
still exists in, in this world that has also has this massive metropolis, right? And where the gold saucer exists. And how many times do we stop throughout the plot and go, oh my God, what a visually stunning introduction to this new place that we're going to, the great Northern cave or any number of other, you know, the forested temple, all of these places. And it's like, it's funny for a game that is really ugly in some parts, how absolutely gorgeous it is. All right, Ira, one thing we can't, unfortunately, <laughs> mm-hmm. not talk about and, and actually, we have a history of this conversation, right? Going back to Final Fantasy IV. And right. the character designs specifically of the women and being alluring or enticing for the male gaze. And it's hard to ignore that Tifa, in particular, and without much subtlety in the original, where we talked about the polygon character models, well, she got big old polygon famous, maybe the most famous chest in the history of video games and it's so weird for dudes to talk about this we shouldn't have to and it's none of our business but there is a history of the like character design conversation and men designing women and where does Tifa fit in all of this and as I said back in that episode we really need to bring these conversations up we're not going to have definitive answers to any of this stuff but it's noticeable it is. It is noticeable. And I. So, like you were just alluding to, there is a difference between what real life people look like, what their bodies are shaped like, what they choose to wear. That is none of our business. But then there are characters, and somebody has to design those characters. And so, if it's straight cisgendered dude who's designing a large-breasted woman, that is a different set of... It's, it's just different, right? So if we're in-universe, Tifa is who she is. She, she, her body right. is what it is, and she can wear whatever she damn well pleases. But right. she is a fictional character. So... Like you said, we're we're a couple straight white dudes. We got to be kind of careful about speaking on behalf of anybody else. So speaking just on my behalf, it is a bit off-putting for the reasons I just outlined. But at the same time, it helps that, as we talked about with some of these other characters, that she is an interesting, well-rounded character with a complex history and set of motivations. So is it exploitative that she was designed with big breasts? Maybe, but she's also an awesome character. Does that make up for it? I have no idea. Right. And what's adding, I think, another really strange wrinkle to this in modern times, and I have no scientific data to back this up. So just in my observations of watching mostly women streamers, Tifa is extraordinarily popular. (laughs) Um... So despite this, uh, because of this, are some also attracted to her? You know, we've talked about that as well, and there ain't nothing wrong with any of that. And so, yeah, I think, boy, did they... Let me put it this way. Boy, did they save themselves from what could have been a colossal disaster or a nightmare or something that in hindsight we look back on and really cringe at if the character hadn't been just so damn awesome and lovable and kind of endured through the years. And, you know, she shows up in Kingdom Hearts and other things with less obvious character design. And even in Advent Children, you know, she's wearing stuff that doesn't necessarily accentuate. Where, like, in the original game, she's even, like, her celebration is basically just sticking them out there. Sure. You know? And gaming and fantasy, and we've talked about this, has a bad history of that and a bad present of it. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, that Tifa separates herself. And, you know, again, to the credit, not to keep bringing remake into it, but it does seem like they learned all of the right lessons from whatever their cringeworthy elements of the past were, because she's still 
everything that she is, but boy, do they not make it a thing anymore. The way it was clearly, like I said, you know, a lot of the game was about being PG-13 in a way they never could be before. So <laughs> swearing and bombs and boobs and guns and, you know. Right. And and some of it wasn't artfully done. So, you know, I think for me, ultimately, what this all boils down to is there. there's kind of the two different things, right? There's the execution of ideas, which in hindsight is a weird thing to judge and critique because it was one of the best looking games ever made at the time. Certainly the best looking console game ever made when it came out. And you didn't have anything else to compare it to and say like, oh, that looks better. But as you mentioned, by the next Final Fantasy game, there would be a huge leap forward. And then the one after that, there's another huge leap forward. And then the one after that is an even bigger leap forward in terms of visuals. And so I think it's tough to try to you know go back to 1997 or, or look with 2021 eyes and talk about the execution of the visuals of Final Fantasy VII, which is why... I think one, you know, you just think about the concepts and all of the design behind it here and two, not to belabor the point, but they are doing it and we are loving it. Why the remake, I think, is hitting so hard with people because, yeah, there, there's always going to be some folks that want to you know, pick apart plot points and, and get frustrated over this, that or the other. But for a lot of us, just going back to this place you know, I was, we were on that um, panel with uh, our Crashing Game Night friends and uh, John Eric Bentley and Austin Lee Matthews and uh, a couple of the other, uh, Vic Chow. I don't want to leave anybody out. Danielle McRae. I, I don't remember who all, I think I got them all. I, I think I so, yeah. And there was something I wanted to say on that that I didn't quite get the chance to, which was just that, you know, for a lot of people, Final Fantasy VII is a game a really great game that they absolutely love. And that's cool. And that's, it's what it is. I mean, let's be honest with it. But for a lot of us too, it was a place. And all these Final Fantasy games are for us, you know, it's, it's a place. And there's no other place like Final Fantasy VII. And as we've discussed in this episode, some of it was stuck in this weird, awkward state. And this is why people had been calling for the game to be remade almost as soon as it was made. <laughs> because we wanted that experience that they just gave us last year. Not to necessarily even re-experience the plot points, but to go back to a home. Like going back to your hometown. And things are different. Oh, that building used to be over there. Well, they changed that. Oh, the road leads... Uh, but, it, but it feels the same. And the feel of Final Fantasy VII is just as important as any of the rest of the things. And it was all there in the original, even if they've kind of had to, in recent times, pull out the best of those ideas and expand upon them to show people what it was really all about. And that's why I couldn't be more over the moon with the way Remake came out and the the way the characters look, the way the slums look, the way the plates look, the, just, and the gold saucer is going to blow my brain out of my ears. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it in the remake. They're doing it all such justice, but there wouldn't have been justice to do to any of it if the original ideas hadn't just been this good. But Drew, what about the door <laughs> textures? <laughs> You know what? You're right. I take it all back. Stores <laughs> and rocks got to get cleaned up. And I don't totally want to dismiss the people who, who point that stuff out, but to me, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, Cloud and Tifa and Aerith, Barrett, Sephiroth, Reno and Rude and Rufus. Red. And Jesse and Biggs and Wedge. Yeah all look and feel not just like themselves, but more like themselves than they've ever been. This is 
quickly turned into a positive review of Final Fantasy VII Remake. <laughs> and you can't stop us, because it's going to be a while, and that's the last thing we'll note here before we sign off on this one. Um, we do have one last total wrap-up for you on Final Fantasy VII, where we try to do our best to encapsulate the big themes, uh, review it to the best of our ability as a piece of art, and, and talk about its ultimate legacy, try to put a cap on all of that. And then... For those of you wondering about compilation and remake and all of that stuff, we'll get to it uh, in the timeline when it actually came out. We, we went back and forth on whether or not we just want to do all the Final Fantasy VII stuff, but I think we're going to be at about 20 episodes of Final Fantasy VII talk. So it'll be time to do a couple of interludes and then get into tactics before we go on to eight. So... Stick around with us. That's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget that if you want more content, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ffweekly. Especially if you're interested in our newest project, Studio Ghibli Weekly, which is, you know, the same thing we're doing here with Final Fantasy, but with all the Studio Ghibli movies. And if you're interested in Star Wars chat, other video games, comic book movies, professional wrestling, and or sports, you can head on over to patreon.com slash dcproductions.